Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Well, it's UPR's Spring Member Drive. And on Access Utah, that means some very special programming, including some best-of segments from our favorite episodes and some great new conversations. And today we'll be talking with emergency room doctor, writer, and UPR member Marion Bishop. We talked with her last year as a part of an episode featuring pandemic frontline workers, and we're checking back in to see how she's been dealing with the pandemic professionally and personally since we last talked. We're also going to talk about the rollout of the vaccines, what the future might look like, and we'll talk about grieving and loss during the uh, pandemic, some of the other blog posts that uh, she's been posting uh, to her uh, website, MarianCBishop.com, uh, I believe it is. Uh, Yes.com, MarianCBishop.com. So, uh, Marion Bishop, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to hear your voice and to be on the program this morning. Great to have you with us. Appreciate you coming on, especially during the during the pledge drive. We're trying to put our best foot forward. We feel like with you on, we'd, we're doing that. Um, so uh, that, That's an honor, Tom. You've got some great guests. <laughs> thank, so, you. thank you. Thank you. Thank um, you. So uh, often we'll have uh, best of some some segments from the past, but we, uh, there's a lot I, I definitely want to talk about, and very very timely, of course, with the pandemic with you. Uh, so we won't have any of the older segments, all new conversation uh, today. And uh, I, I want to um, start with reminding uh, listeners about your background. You, of course, you you write, um, and that's part of your background. So did the writing come first? The I think you studied English, right, and then became a physician. Uh, tell us about that. I did. I had kind of a roundabout course to becoming a, a doctor. I was a, an undergrad at Utah State and then left and moved um, to New York City and actually earned a Ph.D. in English from New York University, and I taught college English for 11 years. And then at some point in my 20s, I decided that I wanted to go to medical school. And so actually I was a student at Utah State again for two years while I collected uh, prerequisites, but went to med school in my in my 30s. And I've kind of joked that um, it took a pandemic to make my first career relevant to my second one. So <laughs> it's been an interesting thing. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I mentioned your website, MarionCBishop.com. You've got a lot of writing on there. You've got a blog. Um, you, you've uh, written for Deseret News and uh, some other places, so urge people to check that out. We'll be talking about some of those blog posts as we go along. So, um, and you decided to specialize in emergency room uh, medicine. Yes. Um, there was, there was, there were a lot of things about it that appealed to me. Sometimes when people meet me and learn that I had this previous life, they're a little bit like, what, what do these two things have to do with each other? But teaching uh, English, teaching about language and literature is all about the human experience. How have people set down the experience of, you know, living on this planet, having children, grieving, struggling? And part of what I loved about teaching English was just the, the human component. And so for me, uh, working as an ER doctor now, that's kind of a really easy translation. I kind of felt like I went from writing about it and encouraging, you know, students to to write about their experience. I'm sorry, kind of reading about and studying about human stories and and encouraging students to tell their own to kind of just putting myself in the middle of the lived experience of of being human. You know, uh, the 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 ER can be traumatic and it can be intense, but it's um, it's always very human. It's always people um, in a moment in their lives that is, you know, probably be a, a big deal for them and, and a touchstone as they move forward. 
Yeah, I can imagine. Um, I, I imagine, you know, a lot of areas of medicine can be stressful. ER, <laughs> by its definition, I, I, I don't know, is it stressful? It It is, and, you know, it's funny because there's another, that's another way in which the two careers have a lot to do with each other. You know, teaching a, a class with a bunch of really engaged students or trying to get students who aren't engaged involved, you know, requires kind of a lot of thinking on your feet and working really collaboratively. One student will say something and it leads to the next place and it needs to leads to the next place, and then pretty soon the whole class is smarter than they were before you started the conversation. And emergency medicine is a lot like that, too. You're making decisions in real time. You're working with a team of people. You're collaborating, and collectively, you're smarter together than you are, you know, as individuals. Um, you know, and I might, I might be the leader in the ER, but just in the way I was the instructor teaching English, you know, often it's the comment of a student or an insight that a nurse or a respiratory therapist has that will add to the body of knowledge that we're building about how to take care of the patient. You work in uh, smaller hospitals, I believe, right, relatively speaking. Yes. Um, for years I worked in the ER in Evanston, Wyoming, which is just was a wonderful place to practice. Uh, I work now at Cache Valley Hospital and also at, in, uh, at uh, Brigham City Community Hospital. Um, I want to uh, talk about a, a post, a very moving post called The Faces of COVID. This was July um, and, and you, uh, anything you want to say before we jump into it about, uh, you know, maybe pick out a, a person or two that you remember from that, uh, piece and, and tell us about it. Oh, them. I, I remember all the pieces in that, all the people in that piece. Um, you know, the pandemic had just started to creep into Utah last summer and, uh, you know, there, there was a lot of conversation about just how bad is it and, what does it look like to be sick with COVID? And I had just started to see patients in the ER, and being sick with COVID can look like a whole bunch of different things. People can be mildly sick, people can be asymptomatic, folks can be moderately sick, and folks can be near death. And that piece was kind of came out of a dual place inside me. Part of me was just wanting to set down what I'd seen because I was learning in real time as well. And I also was trying to say to folks who weren't quite sure about the severity of the disease or even what a mild case looked like, you know, here it is. <laughs> here are some here's some real life images that I've encountered in the last two or three weeks. One that really struck me, you talk about a, a learning the COVID cough. You compare it to pertussis or whooping cough. Uh, but, but but you said quite quickly you came to, you know, you, you could hear that from, I guess, a mile off. Yeah. It, so, you know, pertussis is whooping cough. It's been with us for a long time. And people who get pertussis, they cough so much that they can't catch their breath and they actually die of, of hypoxia, of uh, lack of oxygen, because they can't, they'll cough, 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 and then take a big breath. <gasps> And then cough, 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 cough again. But eventually there's no time for those big breaths and you can't replenish that oxygen supply. And those people, especially, uh, you know, babies die. And that's why the whooping cough vaccines become so important. Um, and I, you know, I'd read about all these people coughing in New York and it was, it felt very real for me because I'd lived there and I knew those hospitals and had a, had a sense of that community. And then I was at work late one night and you know, someone said, there's a patient who, you know, I got a phone call, there's a patient who tested positive for COVID a few days ago and now uh, has a cough that won't stop. And um, 
I was in another part of the hospital for a few minutes, and as soon as I opened the door to the emergency department, I could hear this cough, just this unrelenting cough, 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 and it sounds a little different from the whooping cough, cough, but the persistence of it, and just this unrelenting nature of it, and this poor young person who, who was really struggling to stay alive. I mean, imagine. You know, imagine putting your head under water, and when you can't stand it anymore, your lungs just feel like they're they're going to explode. You come to the surface and take the fastest breath you can, and then you get your head pushed under again. That's the experience of of, of having that cough. You talk about the uh, I don't can't, I can't remember how you phrase it. COVID surprise: a person who comes in thinking yes. they have symptoms of some other thing, and it turns out to be what a pneumonia caused by COVID. Yes, so. It's pretty common that, you know, sometimes I will evaluate someone for, I mean, for example, this has happened several times, where someone will be involved in a motor vehicle accident, and we will go through the appropriate screening to make sure that they're safe and that they haven't been injured, and that might include, for example, a chest x-ray. Someone will say, you know, my chest really hurts, and so I wonder if, you know, that's part of the accident. We'll get a chest x-ray, and, and they will, on more than one occasion, I've seen them have pneumonia that is what consistent with COVID pneumonia, what COVID pneumonia looks like. And often these patients have been asymptomatic, or they've just said, you know, I, I've, well, I've, ha- I've been a little under the weather, but, you know, not so much so that I wasn't out and about today. And, and those, those folks are always surprised. I want to read uh, just a few sentences here. Uh, and this is a blog post you can find at marionsebishop.com. It's called The Faces of COVID. This is from July, I remind you. Uh, so you talk about uh, the, the fact that, you know, unfortunately, politics entered this. Becomes, this has become politicized in important ways. Um, and, and so you have folks uh, who are, in the views of other folks, not taking this seriously or kind of ignoring it. And then the, those folks are saying, well, why are you not taking it seriously? And here's what you write. I actually have compassion for all of us in the middle of this mess. And more than politics, I think it's a lack of knowledge and imagination that causes some of the trouble. It's difficult to wrap one's brain around something we have never seen before that did not even exist in our world till six months ago. It's also easier to blame others or to deny the gravity of the illness than it is to comprehend all the ways an unseen pathogen with a funny name is disrupting and changing our lives. So sometimes, especially after a really hard shift, I wish that the doubters and believers alike could see what I see and know what I know. One of the reasons I assume you wrote the post, um, but but there's a it's a funny way that we are all going through this together. We really are in in a way that uh, you know not many other experiences uh, that we've shared. But in another way, we're not all going through this together. Uh, you know, for some of us, even if we got it, it was mild. Uh, some of us haven't got it or know any family members who have had serious effects or had family members died. But for those family members who have been affected, it's been a, a wrenching experience. Yes. Um, I, I've used the analogy, and I, I'm, I'm not the person who invented this. I think I've read it somewhere that, like, we're all, we're all in the same storm, and we're, we're, we're all at sea on the same storm. And some folks are cruising through the storm in uh, a big ocean liner of um, some kind of protection. Sometimes that's because of the way they're situated economically in, in the world. Um, other times they've just been lucky. And other folks are in the middle of the storm kind of lashed together, you know, to, like struggling to lash, you know, to, to to keep their family alive in a little raft that's you know lashed together with duct tape and you know 
like anyway, it's it's uh, people have had very different experiences of the same storm, and if you're on, if you've cruised through, it's easy to imagine that other folks are having it like you are. And similarly, if you've really suffered, it's hard to imagine why other people wouldn't take it seriously. And so for for me, like, I've seen it all. Like, I've seen the folks who are near death. I've seen folks who've been sick and struggled to keep a job or struggled to not pass it on because they don't have resources to take care of themselves and their family members. And I've also seen neighbors who I love and care about, you know, say things like, I'm really grateful that I've been able to spend more time with my children this year, and it really hasn't affected us. And so we're we're in an interesting moment where we really need to use our imaginations on behalf of other people because it has been the same storm but a very different experience for different individuals. Now, uh, you wrote this post in July. We're now in March. Uh, uh, what are your feelings now? Another six months on, you know, a full year now since the since the pandemic started and the, these disruptions to our lives and these continuing divides in experience and I, I think some would say it, uh, for some a uh, lack of imagination, lack of compassion. Yes. Um, you know, so in the last six months, you know, I wrote that piece as we were just starting to see COVID. Then, you know, as an ER doctor and as a mom, I've ridden through the last, you know, the, the, the wave that's come in the interim, seeing more and more patients at the hospital, working harder and harder, having, you know, neighborhood people, friends get sick, shepherding my children through school. And then on the other, we then I feel like I've kind of come back in some ways to where we were in July in terms of the numbers of cases I'm seeing in the hospital. We're not as busy anymore. And I think as a community, like, yes, sometimes we fail each other and sometimes we politicize things that shouldn't be. But I also, but I also think that we've spent the last six months suffering a kind of collective trauma and that what was new and difficult to imagine six months ago is easier to imagine now because COVID has touched most of us in some ways, even if it's only tangential. And like, I don't want us to all have had that suffering of the last six months, but if it gets us to imagine that other folks might have hurt too, then I, I think that's a good thing. I think that's a, a, a you know, silver lining, hopefully, and in, in where we are now. Do you think we've become more resilient? Uh, uh, we, we had a previous conversation, uh, what, in May of last year, we talked about uh, a blog post you uh, made called Moral Compass circa 1941, you, where you recount your grandfather's experiences in World War II. Yes, I, I think that our, this generation has gone through a comparable experience to you know, it hasn't lasted as long, but to the experiences of my grandparents in World War II, when I heard that statistic that more people have died of COVID than died in our country in World War II, that really struck me that this, I've always looked to that greatest generation as, you know, kind of being my heroes. They were the, they were the stalwart, hardy people who did whatever life asked of them. And it really kind of made me sit down and think, oh my, maybe we've been asked to do something equivalent. And 
like if you'll allow me to go just a minute longer, yes. I, I think, yeah, it, it probably has taught us all something about grit. We've all probably have done things in the last year that we didn't know we were strong enough to do. And once again, I don't want anyone to have suffered, but I don't know if that's all bad. Um, at some point last fall, I was kind of grieving everything my children would be missing because of being at home and not being able to do all of their regular school activities and, you know, not being able to, you know, but, but I had this long list of all the ways that they were suffering. And I talked to this good friend of mine who is in her 80s who sometimes mentors me, and she listened really kindly, and, and then she said, you know, she said, Marion, there are far worse things than your children spending the next year learning how to do hard stuff. <laughs> and and I, I've thought about that a lot. I And I think that my 12-year-old daughter and 6-year-old son will probably be better and more, they'll be more resilient people. They, they may have some, some trauma and some loss that they have to work through, but they've, in their childhoods, learned to do things that, you know, many adults in our world you know, learn to do for the first time in this last year. Well, we'll late in the program, I want to pick up that conversation about your kids um, and, you know, on the personal side for you as well. Um, but before we go to break, I want to uh, make a transition here um, and uh, maybe put on your UPR member hat, uh, Marion Bishop. And um, I, I want to ask you, do you remember when you discovered public radio? Yes. That's an interesting question. I lived in Chicago for two years in my 20s when I was kind of bouncing around earning that PhD, and I was in the car on, uh, uh, so this isn't Utah Public Radio, but this is NPR. Uh, the, I was in the car driving along Lake Michigan and tuned in, and, and that's, that, anyway, that was my discovery. And then, honestly, like, then coming back to the West, I can't remember when I learned about Utah Public Radio because it was just kind of ubiquitous in my life. It's just been something I've tuned into and enjoyed. Do you remember when you uh, when you first became a member of whatever public uh, radio station? Yes, that was right after I finished medical school and moved back to the West. Well, finished residency and moved back to the West to practice. I felt like I'd had this extraordinary experience of getting this great education and wanted to contribute back. And so one of the most obvious and first places that uh, I began making contributions to was to uh, Utah Public Radio. Uh, so uh, maybe your appeal to fellow listeners, what, why should they join you and, uh, and give to, to their public radio station? I think there are a thousand reasons. <laughs> the, uh, some of them that I've been thinking about are really specific to this pandemic year. Just the connection to community that Utah Public Radio provides, uh, hearing, you know, simple things like the weather being read by uh, professors at Utah State makes me feel like, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm part of a community of, you know, smart, interesting people, and they're informing me about the world. And that, you know, translates to all kinds of things. It's, it's been a wonderful connection in this housebound winter to the outside world. Well, the way to take care of that, if you're a new member to UPR or a returning member, uh, you're at renewal in the, in the spring, uh, there's a couple of ways. First is upr.org. upr.org is our website. You can look at all the thank you gifts there. Select one if it's the level that you come in at. Whatever level you choose is great with us, and uh, you'll have satisfaction becoming a member of UPR, upr.org. Or you can call 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. That's 800 
I'll just put a disclaimer here. This program does repeat in the evening, so if you're looking at the clock and it's uh, it's in the 7 o'clock hour, don't call. Go to upr.org. If it's in the 9 o'clock hour, then uh, do call, 800-826-1495. We have Marion Bishop here. She's a ER doctor, writer, and UPR member, and she's uh, spending the hour with us. We're grateful for that. Uh, we will take a break and be right back. Even before the pandemic, the nursing home industry was in crisis. The average nursing home in the U.S. has their entire staff change over over the course of the calendar year. This is a horrible way to provide good quality nursing home care. I'm Audie Cornish. Nursing homes understaffed and underfunded on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. This afternoon from 3 to 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. On the next Living on Earth, hydraulic fracking in rural communities. Even when the kids go to school or to a friend's house, you know, unless they're leaving the state, they're still going to be near a fracking well. So they just feel kind of inundated and overwhelmed by the industry. I'm Bobby Bascom. The health impacts of being surrounded by fracking. Next time on Living on Earth from PRX. Tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Support for UPR programming comes from our members and S.E. Needham Jewelers, offering custom jewelry consultations with on-premise designers and goldsmiths. Open 10 to 7, Monday through Saturday. Located in the middle of the block at the sign of the clock. Information at seneedham.com. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. It's our spring member drive, and we'd love to... Uh, have you uh, pledge your support to UPR and to Access Utah. This program takes a considerable amount of resources. Most expensive uh, programming, by the way, is local programming because the cost isn't spread across a network of a national network of uh, stations. Uh, and so we, we believe that it's important to bring this program to you um, and you can help to pay for this program, the other programs that you enjoy by uh, going to upr.org, upr.org. And um, pledging your support at whatever level, you'll see the thank you gifts there. Take just a couple of minutes and take care of that. Or if it's in the 9 o'clock hour in the morning, you can call 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. We have with us uh, Marion Bishop. Uh, she is a UPR member. She's an ER doctor and a writer. You can find her at mariancbishop.com. She has uh, writing there. Uh, so, Marion Bishop, I wanted to, to talk, maybe to, you know, take the professional hat off, put a personal hat on. Um, so la- when last we talked, this was May of last year, that we were in a couple of months in. Now we're a year in. So I wonder if you could expand on what your kids have been going through. Um, at that point, it was a prospect of disrupted lives. <laughs> now it's been a year of it. What, uh, how have they been doing? You know, they've, they've done remarkably well, but that's not to say that it hasn't been difficult. Um, I, I'm incredibly proud of them. It's been, it's been tough, but they've, they've, they've kind of like the rest of us, they've figured out how to do this. Um, they ended up being, I ended up enrolling them in a hybrid school. Uh, they're at home, uh, they're at school two days a week and at home the other three. That's worked well for my family. I, I, if, if all of us have kind of a certain capacity to tolerate risk, mine is probably bigger than 
most of the general population just because I'm at the hospital. And so I had to think carefully about how much risk could I have them, you know, could I tolerate with them being in school. And and that's been great for our family, but that means that they've had to figure out how to be independent about doing a lot of school work. And they've risen to the occasion, although we've all pulled our hair out at t- from time to time. Um, we, I also had to get really creative about, and I think parents everywhere have had to think about this, you know, creative and safe ways to, you know, have different kinds of activities. We spent the summer, you know, doing, doing sports and things that could be outside. We took tennis lessons from a really great young woman up the street. Um, you know, we hiked and camped a lot, like I think a lot of people did. And uh, we, we have Zoom piano lessons with a teacher who's, you know, been willing to accommodate us. And as more and more people vac- get vaccinated, you know, I think our circle will open slightly. But it's it's definitely been been a struggle. And I think for all parents of young children, we a lot of the resources that we've relied on in the past to help us raise them, you know, sports and different activities, we, we probably have had less access to those in the last year, or many families have. And uh, that it's, it's been, a, been a challenge for the kids and parents alike. Uh, what about uh, school? Um, it's, uh, there's a goal. Uh, President Biden has issued this, this goal nationwide to get back to school in, in person, uh, you know, this spring. Um, and, you know, a lot of schools have been doing in-person and hybrid and, and a mix of things. Um, but that's, it's gotta be disruptive to learning, I'm guessing. I I think so. And I'll I'll tell you like the public school teachers right now are some of my heroes because they took something on in the fall, not knowing, uh, what the consequences would be, you know, in the same way that healthcare providers, you know, put on PPE in the spring and said, we're going to go to work and we don't know what risk will exist for us. You know, last fall, School teachers across the nation, you know, in districts that were open did that. And I'm incredibly grateful for those people. I have a a, a neighbor who teaches um, ESL in elementary school, and, you know, he's one of my heroes, another neighbor who's a a speech therapist. And I think Utah's done a terrific job in uh, keeping schools as safe as they possibly could be. The mask mandate's been huge. the the and, and then the the push to immunize teachers was brilliant because I think that that has given students and parents as much normalcy as they possibly could and I think as the years gone on we've discovered that schools are safer and so I very much agree with the Biden administration's goal to get people back in school you know what what this means long term for how much kids will have missed or how uh, you know what challenges they're going to face in the future because of the disruption to academics this year, I don't think we know yet. But, you know, if those same great teachers who are willing to teach this year are there next fall, I have confidence that we'll be able to sort that out. Just a little bit later in this program, we'll talk about uh, vaccines, very important topic, and uh, maybe get Dr. Bishop to, to look uh, help us look to the future and what, to what that might hold this coming year as, as the vaccines are fully or close to fully rolled out. Um, but I want to uh, take us to another uh, blog post. This is very impactful. You can find this at MarianCBishop.com. And this is a COVID death. And um, this is from December 
uh, late December, just before Christmas when you uh, uh, published this. Um, so uh, basically, you were, you, were, you were at work, ER doctor, and in, you say in a small hospital, the ER doctor at a certain point is the only one there. And so when, you, uh, when, when they need a doctor to pronounce someone dead, uh, you get the call. Yes. Uh, big hospitals often have like a, a kind of a lot of different staff on even through the night. But in the small community hospitals where I have practiced, usually the only doc in the hospital from you know five or six p.m. until the same time the next morning is the emergency room physician. And so often, if there's a crisis, you get called to the floor and asked to help, or in this case, to pronounce a death. So you t- you talked about in this piece uh, that you you try to honor the 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 person right in some small way, um, including by writing it like maybe an additional phrase or something on the, uh, I guess the I, I don't know what it is the the form or whatever it is. Could you talk about that? Sure. So this is something idiosyncratic that I didn't even really realize I was doing, but it's become a pattern over the years. You know, it's a very sad thing to pronounce someone dead, and it really kind of seems ridiculous in a way. Like, how do I have the right to say that someone's dead? It, it just is a, a kind of a, an unusual part of my job. And, and it's also like a sad thing to interact with the family, and it's a time of great loss, and you're a stranger that's brought into that setting. You know, or if it happens when family's not around, it's someone, it, most of the time it's someone I've just met, and I'm given this responsibility. And just because of the way the weight of that has fallen on me, over the years, after, after you pronounce someone dead, you have to say out loud the time that they died, um, and then you have to write a note that becomes part of their medical record that says, you know, I examined this patient, uh, there, there's medical language that you use, like I, you know, I... You know, on auscultation of the heart at five different points, that means I listened with the stethoscope in five different places. I couldn't detect a heartbeat. So there's medical language that has to go in the note. But then probably just to comfort myself and to make sense of this really kind of unusual medical ritual, I just over the years took to adding a personalized sentence. You know, I would say something like, you know, patient died with his wife of 50 years by his side or... Um, the patient died surrounded by family and friends, or just something to humanize it a little bit. Um, and and that has, I, I it probably means nothing to the family unless they request that medical record and give it, but it has meant something to me just to remember that this was a fellow human that I just happened to get to connect with for this brief second while we were both on earth and i'm going to acknowledge that humanness so it's probably been a way of me comforting myself more than anything but it's a habit that i established over the years but it's an important moment right you you're you write that you the doctor who trained you said something to the effect of if you do this right uh, the family won't remember you if you do that's all they'll remember right if you do it wrong that's all they'll remember yes yes it was very funny i was in my third or fourth year of medical school at the University of Utah, and my the senior resident that I was with, he's like, you know, you got to watch, you got to pay attention, you, you need to be discreet, you need to be unintrusive, and you have to get this, this thing done, and just slip in and slip out, and if, if you're the thing that the family remembers about how their family member died, 
how their loved one died, then you've done it wrong. <laughs> you, you want to be the least memorable part of this. And I, I take that seriously. Like, uh, it's, I mean, in, in some ways, a, a, a wedding is analogous to that. It's this funny time when we give someone an opportunity to pronounce someone married. But you hope that you, if, if I was ever a wedding officiant, I would hope I wouldn't mess it up to the degree that I was the thing everyone remembered about the wedding. I would want them to remember the bride and groom and the celebration, right? The, the death is right. the same thing, although, although in, a, in the reverse way. And, and so the, my, the key is often, you hope, right, that there's family there. Um, but, yes. but, but COVID... Uh, has produced this this weird, sad phenomenon where, uh, you know, no one's allowed in. Yes. And it, I hadn't thought about this until you just said this that way, Tom, but I think there are, there are many ways in which that makes it sadder for healthcare providers. But I think, you know, for me, like, I don't want to be the only person that witnesses someone's death. I don't want to be the only person that says that person dies. I want them, I want them, I want another loved one to have a memory of that moment, even as painful as it might be, because it's a way of marking that other human being's sojourn on earth. And then this is brought to a head as you, uh, you reach for the form, right? And there's a new form. Yeah. So this surprised me. So I, I pronounced this patient's death. They were alone in their room. Um, I said time of death out loud as I, it was instinctive as I'd been trained to do, even though there was no one in the room to hear me say that. I walked back to the desk to request the the, the, the form the, the, to write the death note. Sometimes we do that electronically on a computer. Sometimes there's a there's a, a a note where you actually write it out, and this was the first time I had ever seen the nurse just handed me a form, and there was a box for me to check. That just I just checked it and said, you know, I there was a box that checked, and the language said something like, "I witnessed this patient's death." Like it was it was all done for me, and and that form wasn't brought into existence to be cruel or to be. Uh, disrespectful of patients. It just was to facilitate the process. But it felt to me like such a loss. The writer in me wanted to say something about another human being who had just died and that I had had the honor of witnessing the death of a stranger. Like, I I didn't want that person to just be a stranger. So it was a very sad moment for me. You write, uh, dealing with grieving families takes a toll on physicians, but watching patients die alone is worse. And until COVID, it was also rare. So perhaps that's why, while I was pronouncing this COVID patient, memories of that night long ago. Could you tell us about that other? Because previously, since it's so rare, the, your your previous, I guess, worst memory of this <laughs> this case uh, is, is the experience. Maybe we'll have you recount right now. Sure. So dealing with grieving patients does take a blow, and thankfully I was trained by some good people who, in how to manage the, the, the trauma of that situation and how to deal with sad families. But when the families aren't there, it's almost worse. <laughs> and, and I shouldn't say it's almost worse. I, for me, it is. And the years previously, when I was working in Evanston, Wyoming, at one point I, uh, the 
ambulance went out to a local truck stop where a trucker had collapsed while he was pumping gas. And they brought him in to the ER. So this is someone I'd never met. I didn't know. We, you know, coded him or worked on him for quite a long time trying to resuscitate him and were not able to. And then at the end of all that, when I had pronounced this man dead, then we had this question of who was he and who, how would we notify his family? And so the police went through his belongings and we were able to identify him and somehow they helped me. Well, this was in, he had a flip phone and the, the, there was a, uh, under the saved contact, the favorites, there was one that said, my sweetie. <laughs> and so we guessed that that was his wife and, um, we, we called and I notified this woman in a different state far across the country that her husband that she just talked to, you know, hours before while he was driving his 18 wheeler had, had died. And, you know, listening to her cry on the other end of the phone, listening to her wake her children up, not purposefully, but through her tears, and then listening to them cry, that was, that was without a doubt, the hardest death notification I had made uh, in, you know, and, and, until COVID. That, that was, a, that was I, I shouldn't, I feel guilty for saying it was hard for me. It was far, far harder for this woman who lost her husband in a faraway state in such an unfortunate circumstance. Like, she's the person to really have compassion for, but it was it was a difficult moment for me. And so, uh, bringing it forward to this this particular COVID patient, um, a, a gentleman, he becomes a statistic. I think you muse aloud, right? That he'll, he'll be yeah. one of the numbers that'll be reported uh, tomorrow. Uh, you know, man between 65 and 84, you know, and, th- and there it is. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, I said that to the nursing staff. I said, you know, he'll be one of the statistics that gets printed on the state's website tomorrow. Just that this, this human being who hours before had, you know, been vital and alive and days before probably had been interacting with his family had died all alone and now would be an unnamed number in the state's registry. And the point I was trying to make with that piece is that that thing I'd done in Wyoming all those years ago, which was traumatic and difficult and painful for me and extraordinarily painful for the family, um, had now become the norm, that that's what we've been doing all over the country for the last 10 years, or the last, sorry, the last, the last year. Yeah. I just want to read this paragraph. This goes back to community. We were talking about that before. In some ways, community is held together admirably, and, and we talked about resilience. In other ways, the community is really frayed. Uh, so this quoting Marion Bishop, when did we get used to this? I wondered as I signed the paper the nurse handed me, when did it become okay for so many people to die of a disease that simple measures could prevent? And when did it become acceptable to overrun hospitals and leave people to die alone with only overworked ER doctors and nurses to witness their death? I puzzled over how pandemic fatigue and political expedience had somehow come to outweigh our obligations to our loved ones and neighbors and to other people's loved ones and neighbors as well. So this was December of last year. Pandemic fatigue is even worse now. Uh, the the uh, Thankfully, the, the death toll has been lessening a bit, but it's still, <laughs> if you allow yourself to, to focus on it, it's still horrendous. I wonder what your thoughts are at this point. No, I agree. I've been grateful to see the death toll coming down, and I'm 
hopeful that that will continue as people get vaccinated. But it's been a, I, I feel like I've gone to work all winter and other healthcare providers across the world have too, in the middle of that conundrum, um, just w- watching people die and then, you know, seeing on Facebook that the pandemic is overblown or having a casual conversation with a neighbor who's been in one of those ocean liners on the ship and doesn't understand why we have to, you know, social distance and wear face masks because COVID isn't such a big deal. And, you know, that's when I just, you know, sometimes I want to weep for these people who've died and say, well, it may not be a big deal to you, but it's a big deal for a lot of other folks and a lot of other families. And I don't mean to sound all despairing right now, but, you know, that takes me back to this business about imagination that um, sometimes just because things are easy for me doesn't mean that my, my, my perspective on this, on this, on the pandemic may not be the only one. And I think it behooves is an old-fashioned word, but, but if we can imagine the suffering of other people, it will help us collectively. Mm. Um, I'm and, not sure if that answered your y- question. Yes, but. yes, definitely. Um, and you know, to get back to community, um, unfortunately, again, some of these measures that <laughs> could have helped, I think, right, um, have been politicized. For example, wearing a mask. Uh, so it gets, yeah. gets, gets back to community. You know, we wear a mask to help to, to help the, the most vulnerable among us is one of the reasons, right? Yes. You know, and I, I sympathize with, I had this interesting perspective about, about mask wearing. Like, I sympathize with people who don't like to wear them because I have to wear them all the time, and they are frustrating and annoying and painful and like, I don't find it pleasant to wear a mask at work, and so I'm, I'm, you know, or all the other garb I have to wear. But so, so when people say, oh, I hate doing this, it's not, I, I, like, it's so annoying. I'm like, yeah, I get it. It is. It's annoying. It's frustrating. I, I, I wish I had that. You don't like doing it for the last, you know, six months. I don't like having done it for the last 15 years, you know. But it, but in comparison, like, it's a small inconvenience that, can make an extraordinary difference in keeping people healthy. And one of the simple reasons I believe in the efficacy of wearing masks is because in the early days of the pandemic, they saved my lives. You know, in hospitals, we figured out really quickly that if we masked up with every patient, that healthcare providers wouldn't get sick. And if we asked patients to put masks on as soon as they came into the hospital, that they wouldn't get sick. You know, in the early days of the pandemic, uh, Healthcare providers were getting sick from asymptomatic patients who brought, you know, brought the disease in from other illnesses. And when we started asking patients to mask up and when we universally masked with every single patient, all of that hospital communication of disease went down. So they, they work. Like, uh, you know, I'm alive talking to you on the phone now because they work. And I also understand that they are annoying and frustrating and whatever else. But I just come back to, like, it's such a small thing. Like, can I tolerate? Well, and here's how I think about it. Sometimes I'll head off to the grocery store and I'll realize I don't have a mask with me. And I think, oh, I've got to go home and get it. But, you know, is three minutes out of my life to return home and get a mask, you know, worth whatever contribution that makes to my community? I think absolutely. And it's, it's not that it's not a challenge, but it's well worth taking on. 
If you just joined us, we're talking with Marion Bishop. She's an ER doctor and uh, a mom. She's a writer and a UPR member. And so just before we go to break again, uh, Marion Bishop, uh, have you put your UPR member hat on? So uh, as as you know, I, I imagine uh, you've listened to the pledge drives, and so you you could you could repeat this with me. Uh, it's very important. There there are many people who are listeners to public radio. It's a smaller percentage who are actually members of a radio station like uh, like UPR. So wh- why are you a member? What uh, Why is it important for you to give? Uh, this is going to be a very, uh, perhaps a surprising answer that tells you about the rest of my life. I became a member so I didn't have to remember to contribute <laughs> occasionally. Like, it just it made it automatic, right? Like, let me contribute a small amount every month, and then I don't have to remember to write a check once a year or twice a year or, you know, call the station. Membership for me was simply a um, a way to automate giving that made my life simpler. So uh, I guess that's an argument um, on behalf of laziness. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, join Marion Bishop in being lazy and uh, and contribute now. Although I, I believe you're anything but lazy, uh, as evidenced by your career and everything. But uh, yeah, that's that's it. You can do this on payroll deduction if you are a benefited employee of Utah State University. You can uh, you can set this up on a credit card. You can you can automate this as Marion Bishop has been saying, uh, and and just make it easy for you, and you'll still have that satisfaction of become being a member of UPR. We hope that you'll take care of that right now while you're thinking about it before your day gets busy. And here's a couple of ways you can do that. It just takes a couple of minutes. UPR.org. UPR.org is our website. Go there. You can see the thank you gifts and everything. UPR.org. Or 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495. I'll have you look at the clock when I say that. If it's in the 9 o'clock hour in the morning, uh, do go ahead and call. If it's in the 7 o'clock hour, please go to the website, UPR.org. That number is 800-826-1495. And uh, we're thanking you in advance. Did you know that the words lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender are used very infrequently, if at all, in state social studies guidelines across the nation? The exclusion of LGBTQ individuals, issues, and social movements in social studies teaching guidelines has significant implications for students who identify as LGBTQ or other marginalized groups. Researchers in social studies education are working to create more inclusive standards to contribute to a learning atmosphere where all voices and perspectives are valued. Inclusive guidelines support curriculum and instruction that benefits students' physical, mental, and academic health. This segment of Did You Know That? has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's the UPR Spring Member Drive, and uh, we're talking with Marion Bishop. She's an ER doctor, writer, UPR member. You can find her at mariancbishop.com. And uh, we are uh, talking about uh, the pandemic, uh, mostly uh, on the program today, very timely topic, of course. Uh, I don't want to neglect vaccines. That's a very important topic. So this last segment, uh, we have about six minutes to, to, to do that. Um, you wrote a uh, recent uh, piece for the Deseret News uh, called uh, or headlined, I'm an ER doctor. I've seen vaccines 
save lives. Um, I wonder if you could briefly uh, tell us about uh, the experience you recounted this piece. Uh, you were in Ghana one summer, uh, so tell us what happened. This was an amazing experience, and this woman that I'm about to tell you about is one of my heroes. So I spent some time in Ghana uh, between my first and second year of medical school, and we worked with Ghanaian medical students, with public health nurses. We did a lot of different things. But one morning, I, another student and I set off with a public health nurse and a driver to this remote village, and we, we left at about 3.30 or 4 in the morning because it took a long time to get there. And when we were about halfway to this village, the driver pulled the car over on the side of the road, and it was still dark and probably just, you know, 15 or 20 minutes before the sun was going to come up, and I said to them, what, like, why did we stop? We're not there. And the public nurse said, just wait, you'll, you'll see. And just as the sun started coming up, it was this kind of cinematic moment. This woman just walked out of the woods, walked out of the bush. She was probably in her early 20s. She was carrying a baby on, their ba- on her back. Uh, the mothers there have this wonderful way of using a big swath of fabric to swaddle the baby on their back. And anyway, she walked out of the out of the bush, took the baby off her back, kind of unswaddled it. The public health nurse uh, vaccinated the baby. They talked for a little bit. The public health nurse signed this dilapidated, you know, piece of paper that was the vaccination card. The mother put it somewhere secure and then walked back into the bush. And this and I was just dumbfounded by all of this. And the nurse explained that this woman lived in an even more remote village, and that this spot on the side of the road was the closest place she could get to any health care. And she had left her village the night before at dusk and had worked all night long alone with her baby to meet that that vaccination appointment. And what's more, she lived in a village without any electricity, probably didn't even have a clock, and this appointment had been made months before at the previous immunization time. And this woman had remembered and then made this trek on behalf of her infant. And I, I, the public health nurse just, it was so simple. She said, you know, I, I was like, why, like what, you know, what would possess someone to risk her own life in that way for her baby? And she just said, she's seen children die of measles and whooping cough and seen children be disabled because of mumps and other childhood diseases in her village. And she doesn't want that for her baby. And for, for this woman, this mother had kind of a lived knowledge of all these diseases, and so she knew what she was vaccinating her child against. It was really extraordinary. Yeah, that is an extraordinary experience. Uh, so bringing it to the, the COVID vaccine, uh, the increasing numbers of us are eligible to do that. I think uh, what uh, on the 24th is, is when everybody down to 16 is, is eligible. Um, if there's widespread, we hope there, so far there is, widespread, uh, you know, vaccination, uh, what is your hope? I don't know if uh, there's a timeline you're hoping for, but uh, of when, you know, get back to quote-unquote, I'm doing air quotes, uh, you can't see that, but normal. Yes, I don't, I, I think it's going to be gradual. Like, I'd like to say all the disruption to our lives is going to end at this moment, but I, I think it's, kind of that things will begin to get easier and we'll see less and less COVID. And, you know, gradually one day, hopefully, you know, late this year, early next year, we'll realize that more things have returned to normal and we'll start to to breathe a sigh of relief. The, The caveat to that is if we get clobbered by one of these variants that other countries have, have suffered with. And so, 
that's all the more important reason to for as many of us as can to try and get vaccinated. So a vaccination, there's some vaccine skepticism out there. I, I, I've been reading there's a certain percentage that we're going to have to, uh, of the community to, to get vaccinated, 70% or something, um, you know, before it's truly effective. Uh, and we still have to wear masks. Uh, what, still have to distance? What, uh, we're still going to have to do some of these things? Well, the more of us that get vaccinated, the more of us we can let go of all those other things, right? So that's a motivation. Um, and uh, I, I, I understand the vaccine skepticism. Like with everything else, like this whole year has been such a learning curve of things that we never imagined we would have to do before. And I respect people saying, wait a minute, I want to think about my body. I want to think about uh, my children's health and, you know, try and gather information. But I would kind of like with that woman in Ghana years ago, like if you're, if you're hesitant about the vaccine, you know, talk to other folks who've had it, learn their experience, uh, talk to your doctor, talk, you know, talk to reputable sources. And also there's a growing body of people who've had the vaccine who can vouch for it. You know, I had both doses. I've done, I, I've, I've had very little, like no trouble at all. Uh, and uh, except for, you know, a little body ache for a day or two after the shot. My 80 year old parents have had the shot. Um, you know, the, the, I, 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 the number of people I know who've had the shot ha- and have done really well is growing. So if, if you're worried, talk to people you trust about it. So contact your local health department and uh, everybody, uh, 16 and up, will be able to, to get the vaccine here uh, very, very shortly. Uh, so we just have a couple of minutes left in the program. want to uh, take some time for the member drive uh, again, finally, at the end of the hour. Um, so once again, Marion Bishop, um, uh, why should why should people become members of UPR? Well, it's interesting. There has been a thread of community running through this conversation that I hadn't known, but I think that's another argument for contributing to Utah Public Radio. It's a way of supporting the community that we live in. It's a way of supporting news and information about this community and to help it get out. Uh, there, there are lots of things that contribute to a, to a community, you know, religious organizations and businesses and schools, but I think public radio is an important part of how we establish community as well. Here's how you can take care of that if you're a renewing member or perhaps a new member of UPR. It takes just a couple of minutes, and uh, we would love to have you on board. Uh, you really are the uh, you are the single most important uh, source of funding for UPR. So upr.org, upr.org is our website. That's the place to go, upr.org. You can see the thank you that gives there. Take care of that. A couple of minutes, and you'll be on your way. And we thank you so much in advance. upr.org is the place to go. So Marion Bishop is an emergency room doctor, writer, UPR member. You can find her at mariancbishop.com. Marion Bishop, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on with us. Oh, you're welcome, and thank you for a chance to reflect on this last year and to join the conversation about what this has meant for all of us. Thank you so much. Thank you for providing that, and uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Hi. This is Noelle Cockett, president of Utah State University. 
I listen to UPR in my car and online at upr.org. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM Logan. Also heard online at upr.org.